Good day, and thanks for tuning in to our podcast, which we're recording this morning on July 22nd, 2021. This is Martha Maripes, and I will be your host today. I am looking forward to interviewing my longstanding friend to the North, W. Scott Thurlow, a lawyer and senior government affairs advisor to over 30 clients on regulatory matters and policies pertaining to chemicals management, climate change, government ethics, and lobbying roles. Scott is currently a member of the Minister of Health and Minister of Environment and Climate Change's Stakeholder Advisory Council on the Canada's Chemical Management Plan. As an advocate for the manufacturing sector, Scott is a registered lobbyist for the Dow Chemical Company, Methanex, Selenese, Imperial, the American Chemistry Council, and the Chemical Industry Association of Canada. And he has served as a senior advisor on environmental policy for many important metal manufacturing associations. Scott earned his bachelor's degree on political science from Carleton University, a master's in political science from the University of Western Ontario, and his law degree from the University of Ottawa, a true Canadian. Scott, you bring an incredible depth of knowledge to the table, as I've just recited, on regulatory challenges facing Canadian businesses operating in the chemical space. So thanks for joining us today on our podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, and I'm glad that my mother's version of my resume got to your desk. So <laughs> well, thank you, but it's an impressive one, and, and you know we've worked together for many years. We look to you for a expertise on Canadian regulatory issues. And so I thought it was worth uh, going through today. So thanks for bearing with me on that. I'd like to start our discussion today by letting our listeners in on the latest news on the designation of all plastics as toxic by Environment and Climate Change Canada. How did this come about, Scott? And what is the industry doing about it? Well, um, th there's a lot of different ways to answer your question, but the easiest way to answer it is when the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And I don't think there's anyone in industry that thinks that there shouldn't be something done to deal with plastic waste. Like this is absolutely an issue uh, of, of great concern. It is one that is both local from a pollution perspective, but also international from an oceans and, and microplastics perspective. So it's a very, very important issue. Um, so in 2018, at the World Economic Forum, Prime Minister Trudeau pledged that his government would take action on oceans plastics. A little over a year later, the Prime Minister stood up and said that they would create a regulation to ban certain quote-unquote toxic single-use plastics. In early 2020, the government published the State of the Science or Science Approach document on plastic pollution, which was really just an elaborate book report of all the science that was out there um, saying that plastic in the natural environment was bad. And then in October of 2020, the government released a risk management document laying out how it would deal with certain single-use plastics. It identified six plastics that it would ban, and those plastics were uh, straws, single-use stir sticks, six-pack rings, plastic utensils, plastic straws, and some foodware. And it's not very well defined what that foodware is, but I assume what they're getting at is the takeout containers from fast food restaurants. Now, that's, that's their goal. That's their risk management objective. However, operationalizing that with the current suite of laws that were available to them was impossible. 
And so what they've decided to do is they are going to declare plastic manufactured items as toxic under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. The act was designed to deal with individual chemical substances and, you know, pollution from the industrial sense. It was not designed to deal with consumer products. Um, right, however, and that toxic this, designation was kind of a trigger that l lets them go into risk management, the way you've explained this to me in the past. But like you said, it was you know designed for specific and has been used for specific chemicals, right? A absolutely correct. And so there's a, a series of questions about whether or not the act has the appropriate legal foundation. And so after, you know, doing as much work as we possibly can to, to shape the public policy space so that we're focusing on incidents of pollution rather than the plastic itself, industry was forced to come together and launch a lawsuit against the federal government. And so there's quite a few different grounds um, that the industry is taking. And the first and most important one is the fact that plastic manufactured items are not a substance. Um, so this is like, we don't believe that they are classified as a chemical substance. So this is an exercise of statutory interpretation, but it's a very interesting one. You know, there's a little bit of a waterfall of legal arguments here. And so after we talk about what is or is not a substance, we talk about whether or not plastic manufactured items meet the statutory test for what is toxic. We don't believe that that it does. Uh, I think if you do a qualitative assessment of the risk assessments that have been carried out under SEPA and its predecessor acts, we're, we're talking about, you know, molecules that have very specific characteristics. This is not one of them. So then the third argument is a process-based argument where the government has an established practice that they follow for doing the risk assessment of risk management for chemical substances. And when the prime minister starts with the final risk management outcome, we think that they're not following their process, which is pretty important. Then there's some questions about whether or not the government actually conducted what's known as a screening assessment. That's mandated by the act. We say that they don't. We think they published a lousy book report and they're going to argue that they did a screening assessment. And then the most important process-based argument that we're advancing is that the government failed to establish the link between the harm they identified, which is plastic in the environment, and plastic manufactured items. The computer that I am working on right now is a plastic manufactured item, for example. And so not all plastic manufactured items are going to carry the same risk of creating the harm. Now, on page two of the, the lawsuit, we get into what I call the more interesting national concern questions. And that is, you know, is this really a backdoor mechanism to get at provincial jurisdiction. And so we asked a constitutional question about whether or not this is a valid use of the federal criminal law power when what they're really talking about is waste, um, which is very squarely a provincial designation. Um, we believe that it is overbroad in the use of the criminal power, which is a different constitutional no-no. You cannot have a vague law and when you're using the criminal law. It has to be very specific. And finally... Well, it seems and, very broad overall, agreed. You know, I yeah. mean, it would even include plastics that are better for the environment and degradable plastics and, and recyclable plastics, right? 
Absolutely. And I mean, the, the, in the government's defense, in their risk management document, they do get into those questions about what the substitution equivalents would be, which kinds of products should be exempted. So they talk about biodegradability. They talk about, you know, the, the, the plastics, which do get recycled. They do talk about deposit return and, and other mechanisms that do encourage uh, people to return plastics or get them out of the natural environment and back into the economy. I think the biodegradability one is going to be very interesting. I mean, the only true precedent that they have right now is the European Commission, which apparently didn't do such a good job on this. So I know that there are quite a few, uh, particularly farm and forestry groups that are looking at this for their residues because they make bioplastics, I, I believe is the, the the word that they use to describe the product that they make. So we, we can certainly expect to see some exemptions to the rule based on the definition of plastic that's in the actual regulation, which we don't have. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but is Canada going forward with this rule while the litigation is is pending? Can you just talk about the status? Uh, Absolutely. So um, we expect that the draft regulation will come out in August or September. Canadian elections notwithstanding, and I'm happy to gossip about that a little bit later if you'd like, because we don't have fixed election dates in the same way that you have them embedded in the U.S. Constitution. We can just go and have one for fun. But yes, they are absolutely proceeding with uh, the regulatory system. The prime minister's pledge was to have the regulation in place by the end of 2021. So that that time is coming, and the prime minister usually carries out on, on these types of very deliberate environmental promises. So they will continue. Obviously, industry has asked for a stay in the application of these. We are, you know, basically just exchanging legal documents right now with the, with the government. So we, we don't have a trial date set, but it will likely be in, in 2022. Thanks for running through the arguments for us. It's good to know the, the positions that, you, that you're advancing um, as part of this litigation. It sounds like there's a number of them that are being put forward. When my kids um, get to law school, they'll be able to read about this case, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, we'll, we've, we've been watching with a great degree of interest uh, from the side of the border and we'll continue to do so. But let's turn to another favorite topic that we both share an interest in, which is the future of nanotechnology. Canada recently updated a uh, policy on nano, and can you provide us with some insights on that document and its potential impact? Sure. So as you are well aware, this is an area of uh, chemicals regulation that every country around the world has struggled with understanding. The government of Canada put out a policy paper in draft form. It expects to have a formal consultation on that document, uh, probably Q3 or Q4 of this year. Again, election notwithstanding. They have laid out what I would describe as a fair process for doing nano-based assessments, where they're going to focus on the bioavailability of the substances in that form and the differentiation between exposures for the chemical substances based on particle size. And industry has not reacted too strongly to the proposed paper. I think when industry is going to get more interested is when they actually get into doing some risk assessments based on size. And so the government has informally hinted 
that the first two substances that they're going to do assessments on the nanoscale will be titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. There's no rhyme or reason for that. I think the, the reason that they've decided to pick those two is because they're conspicuous and they are in use in Canada and they've been identified as such. But until we actually see our first risk assessment, we're, we're a little bit, you know, skating in the dark. We don't really know whether or not they're going to do a good job. So I would stay very close to the Canada Gazette to see how that's going. I do know that both of those businesses are already engaged, both the zinc manufacturers and the titanium dioxide manufacturers and users. So it's, it's going to be very interesting. And I hate to use the word interesting, but it's just we don't know what those first risk assessments are going to look like yet. Right. And TIO2 has been you know, very busy in Europe, but it looks yes. like the forum is shifting over to Canada here shortly. Yeah. No, that's, that is very true. And again, like we'll, we'll see the first risk assessments when they come out. As I understand it, you know, we're, we're going to have kind of new edge breaking science in this area for Canada. We've been flirting with these types of assessments for over a decade and never carried one out. So yeah. it's, it, it will be, it will be a, 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 an interesting study to say the least. Yeah, I wanted to cover it with you because uh, it, it does appear like Nano is coming back to the regulatory forefront. It's had a little hiatus for a while, but it, it looks like we can uh, look forward to activity in that area as well. The next one that I'd like to talk to you about, though, is PFAS, the perfluoroalkyl substances class. As you know, those are man-made chemicals that were developed back in the 40s, and they've been used ever since then to Greaseproof, waterproof, and give no-stick properties to a myriad of products in our economy. And today, they're known as forever chemicals because of their longevity in the environment and the human body due to traits of persistence and bioaccumulations. Two of the most studied of those are PFOA and PFOS. These longer-chain substances seem to stay around longer, and so these two in particular are being regulated significantly in the United States. We just had Charlotte Bertrand join us at Wiley, and Charlotte was uh, instrumental in authoring EPA's PFAS action plan. And in the United States, we're seeing a high level of regulatory activity in Congress, by EPA, and even you know at the state level. So with that as an introduction about what's happening here, Scott, what's happening in Canada on PFAS? Well, um, if nothing else, Health Canada is demonstrating their commitment to the risk-based and science-based approach because unlike some U.S. states or the House of Representatives, they haven't rushed into a very broad classification and, and risk management regime. Um, they've asked some pretty important questions and they've given themselves a lot of runway in order to answer those questions. The first and most important question that they've asked is what is PFAS? They don't necessarily believe it's a group, right? It's, it's a, a group. group. Well, yeah. So, but they and 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 what is in and what is out of those groups, and and so they're they're very deliberately seeking input on which chemistries should be assessed similarly, and which ones should be assessed in terms of the the management for their uses, and whether or not there are viable alternatives. Now, there's a lot of different interesting legal concepts that are going to come up here, like what is 
a endocrine disruptor, what is uh, an, an alternatives assessment, whether or not there is the possibility for regrettable substitution if, if invasive risk management concepts are taken. But first and foremost, they're going to say, you know, what are the chemistries that should be in a group assessment and whether or not we should be breaking them up into subgroups because of the similarities of the physical chemical properties of these individual substances. That having been said, Canada is actually way out in front on PFOA and PFOS. Both of those are banned. Uh, in Canada, there was a prohibition regulation that was carried out some time ago. There were individual risk assessments that were done for those two fluorinated chemistries specifically. They're off. Okay, like we, okay. we do not have to worry about PFOA and PFOS um, because that is something that has already been taken care of through the chemicals management plan in, in the first early phases of the program. But the other PFAS substances, they're the rest of the family of chemistries, this is an open question. And so I would urge your clients who have an interest to participate in this consultation. Health Canada has said that they will release their science approach within two years, and that was kicked off in April. So there is a lot of time. Okay, mm -hmm. they are not they are not rushing into this. However, that's Health Canada. What the House of Commons or the Senate of Canada does, I can't control and is not nearly as predictable. I would expect that there will be some kind of copycat bill from the, the bill that was introduced into the U.S. House or the Vermont House or the Maine House or whatever other state has launched an invasive ban on these chemistries. I fully expect some kind of private members legislation that deals with this issue. We've seen private members legislation used this way before uh, by environmental groups as they find their champion. And you know what? Like that's going to be a tough fight if for no other reason that there's so many of these other bills out there that the legislators can point to. So, I mean, there's two, there's definitely two different tacks here. There's the deal with the risk-based approach that Health Canada is advancing, and then there's deal with the elected to the House of Commons in whatever way they decide to advance this issue. And historically, the House of Commons, when they take a substance-specific approach, they do a very bad job. SEPA is a broad enabling statute and it grants authority to the ministers to do this type of work and the Canadian officials are really, really good at it. The Canadian legislators, less so. Okay. And, you know, tur turning to SEPA, I understand before we wrap up here uh, that there are some developments percolating uh, in that very area about amending SEPA. So let's spend just a few more minutes on any other hot button issues facing the business of chemistry in Canada, including uh, the legislation C-28 to amend SEPA. What do our listeners need to know about Canada's position on amending SEPA? So the minister tabled C-28 in uh, April of this year. C-28 adopts several recommendations from a parliamentary committee on the need to update SEPA. SEPA was last amended and substantively amended in chemicals management in 1999. So there's a lot of housekeeping that needed to be done. From my perspective, I think the most important change was the fact that they actually removed the word toxic from Schedule 1. And while you know, the, the, the lay person on the street is not going to necessarily appreciate how important that is legally. Now, after a risk assessment is done, a substance is not labeled as SEPA toxic. So that is a huge deal 
from a legal perspective and from an industry perspective. So, you know, if C-28 was to pass, plastic manufactured items would be added to Schedule 1, but Schedule 1 would no longer be the SEPA toxic list. So that that's a pretty big deal. There's another interesting concept um, that's being talked about, and it's called the watch list. I, I mean, I look at it, you know, skeptically because I'm a little bit of a cynic. But the watch list is designed to deal with the substances which have hazard profile um, from a physical or chemical perspective, but don't have uses or exposures in Canada that would justify a toxic designation. So it's kind of like an institutional snur for your hmm. American clients where they put the substance on this on this watch list and they tell the world, look, we know that these substances have certain properties. We don't believe that there's a need for invasive risk management to eliminate the chemistry or to manage the uses of that chemistry. But we want everyone to know that it's on this watch list. And so if you want to use it, you're going to have to get very special permission. For me, it's the codification of our SNR equivalent, which is called a snack. Right. There are others, however, who think, well, they're just going to put everything on this list and it's going to turn into the new NSN notification system. And I don't think well, it that sounds that's a true. little bit like the candidate list yeah. in Europe or something yeah. to it's, me. It's, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it has similar attributes, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't know whether or not C28 is going to pass in its current form. This parliament may be over by the end of the month. So we'll, we'll see. I personally guarantee that when the, the legislature returns, whether it's in this current form in an, or in a new form, um, this will be a priority piece of legislation because there are elements of uh, SEPA reform that are required to allow for the chemicals management plan to continue into the future beyond 2021. And that includes the new categorization process or the, the priority selection process and some new triggers. And the newest trigger, and it's one that I like a lot, it's called the Dear Minister trigger, where Scott and Martha could write a letter to the minister and say, Dear Minister, we want you to assess the following chemistries, and here are the reasons why you think we think that you should. The amended act would create a duty for the minister to respond to that request within 90 days to either A, tell them that he, tell the, the author of the letter that he will be doing the assessment, he or she will be doing the assessment, or to give reasons why they won't be doing an assessment. So mm-hmm. industry is a little worried that this trigger could lead to a neverendum of assessments of these you know, high profile substances. But others are like, well, maybe reassessment for ones that are already on schedule one where there's new science that's come up could could be used. And I think that is something that is good. And it, it creates transparency in a system for the most part which is kind of inaccessible to most Canadians and the number one goal of the chemicals management plan as stated when it was launched um, is to ensure that Canadians have confidence in the products that they use and in the fact that the government is managing their exposures to certain chemistries. So I think that that particular amendment goes a long way in assuring that. Thank you, Scott, for being with us today and sharing your thoughts on lots of things that are going on in Canada with regard to plastics, with regard to nano, with regard to PFAS, and also with regard to amending your very important SEPA law. Um, 
I, uh, I, I really appreciate your insights today. Thank you for joining us for this podcast and look forward to doing another one in the future to get an update on all of these things. Happy to do it. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Martha.